Welcome to Suburban Connections. My name is George and I'm a graduate urban planning student and professional in the Southern California area. I'm joined by my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Mary. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Danny. And the topic for today's episode is going to be a topic on a lot of our listeners and our own minds, uh, which is the overall topic of COVID-19, the pandemic of our times. Uh, I'm pretty sure everybody has some sort of experience or that their life was affected by this pandemic. Uh, So we're going to try to go about it from an urban and regional planning perspective. Um, We're going to be talking about a few different facets of it. And to start off, we're going to have Danny. Yeah, I, I want to talk about teleworking today. You know, um, I live in the Inland Empire and I know a lot of other people who live in the Inland Empire and generally what, you know, happens is that we commute out to Los Angeles, Orange County, San Diego for work. You know, that was like pre-pandemic and you dealt with a lot of traffic and, you know, just insane amount of commuter stress. And now because of this like massive shift to teleworking, you know, there's been less traffic and a lot of interesting implications, you know, um, and it makes me wonder what things are going to be like after the pand, you know, the pandemic, because I don't think <laughs> personally it's going to go back to normal or like the normal, you know, post COVID isn't going to be the normal pre COVID and just doing a little Googling. I found um, some numbers from a website called Global Workplace Analytics that talks about how employees who work from home generally save like $2,500 to $4,000 per year as a result from working from home. And that's mostly because they're not having to spend money on travel or parking. And then employers <laughs> benefit because if they have like half-time telecommuters, they end up saving about $11,000 per year. And teleworking um, half a week saves commuters around 11 workdays per year and time that would have otherwise been sent sitting in traffic. Um So that makes me wonder, as people are getting used to and getting a taste of teleworking, like what that's going to look like in the future, you know, Um, and the same website that was, you know, showing how teleworking benefits people. um, They conducted a survey and found that 82% of U.S. office workers want to continue to telecommute at least weekly post-pandemic. And that makes me wonder what's going to happen to all those office buildings and spaces, uh, you know, that are empty now because people and, you know, large portions of companies are, you know, switching to teleworking permanently. So what is our world going to look like post pandemic? So I kind of wanted to pose the question is how we as planners and community advocates can take advantage of this transition period to advocate for changes that benefit communities, Mm. you know, kind of a big question, a big ask, but I think it's important to, you know, reflect on these things. When you put it that way, Danny, it's like, it's the, it's almost like the perfect solution for 
our housing crisis a little bit, right? Like you were saying, we're going to have these buildings that are going to be largely empty. Um, and what, how can we reuse them, you know, adaptive reuse of these existing buildings. And we have a huge housing crisis in Southern California or California in general. Um, so who's to say we can't turn these, these existing buildings into, you know, apartments. They, they should be already centrally located, right? The, the, the job centers at least. So uh, maybe that's one way we can go about doing that. I hadn't thought about that. That's a really interesting perspective. I was totally thinking of let's just tear them all down and build more like open green space to, you know, combat the urban heat island effect, you know, to, to liven up and green, you know, urban centers and areas like that. But apartments and housing would be a terrific option. I think we could do both. I think there's definitely room to do both, um, especially with the way that we're going. I do think that COVID, I mean, obviously not like a blessing, but, you know, there are some pros to, you know, what COVID has kind of how it's impacted our society. And at the same time with the improvement of technology and stuff like that, it has this is kind of where we were going anyway. So it kind of just sped it up a little bit. But I do think that um, these office spaces are, are maybe going to go, you know, phase out a little bit. And, and I think I do think both of what you guys said was, um, were both really great options for uh, reusing these types of buildings. I think that these buildings and maybe how we use this extra space will be a really good um, test run or like a pilot for experimenting with urban flexibility in terms of infrastructure um, because we invest in such huge projects that um, we have to be aware of you know the unexpected scenarios like COVID through infrastructure for a loop and we have to encourage our cities to be smart about their investments that they can be adaptable. The biggest obstacle in trying to kind of turn these into, you know, like green spaces or low income housing um, would be that they're privately owned and <laughs> these buildings are privately owned and the owners will obviously want to have um, profit for whatever they change these buildings into or convert these buildings into. And I think that would be an obstacle is trying to find that middle ground of where can they still obviously make money because that's what they care about and how can it benefit the community? Totally. And the way that I see it is that you have developers who are going to have that mindset initially. And then maybe all you have to do is remind them of all those strip malls that are sitting empty and abandoned and making nobody no money. And that repurposing and adapting isn't just beneficial to people that, you know, are in desperate need of low-income housing, but it is definitely a way to keep property from just sitting and not being, you know, economically um, utilized in the most sensible way. So that would be my kind of um, pushback to that. Mm, and, you know, I feel like there's definitely a coming together between uh local officials and developers that, that needs to happen for to, for any kind of reuse. Uh, because I've definitely, in my experience, um, I've ha have fielded phone calls from developers that are just itching to try to redevelop a particular, 
you know, underperforming shopping center or whatever into uh, mixed use development or just something exciting and sexy like that. Uh, but they're held back because the current zoning of the property doesn't allow them to do that. So I feel like if there is some sort of uh, outreach effort made by the city to these, uh, to you know, potential candidates for this kind of adaptive reuse, I, I, I want to say if we cast a wide net, we are going to find a few uh, property owners and developers that, that are willing to move to go forward with it. Um, like, uh, for example, one of the uh, perfect examples of that is um, the packing house in Anaheim. It used to be a literally a packing house, a citrus packing house, um, but it was turned into this, you know, little little mecca of uh, really fancy and cool restaurants uh, as an incubator space. So I, I feel like there's definitely some opportunity there. I think Claremont has a similar type situation with like a former citrus packing house that's now kind of their, you know, where their cool restaurants and, you know, shopping art gallery things are located. The other one that comes to mind, the name is escaping me right now, but in, in New York City, uh, they have some sort of old industrial building right by the the skyline. Uh, Highline. Highline. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the Highline. Um that uh that was also turned into this retail space so uh, maybe maybe these office buildings are the new uh are going to be houses? the new yeah exactly packing houses like these old industrial buildings that are now going to redevelop and we can definitely use them as examples to push you know for change in you know zoning laws and building standards and codes and i think this is a real opportunity for kind of communities to speak up and start trying to, you know, design or plan for their future communities post COVID. And, you know, having these um, examples from, you know, California's agricultural past is like a really good kind of standing to have and advocating for there's real potential in, you know, going for those mixed use designs or low income housing projects to really just kind of uh, revamp what's probably going to be, you know, just sitting empty, abandoned office spaces. Right. The, the policymakers and, and local decision makers definitely need to take a hard look at their existing zoning regulations and just come to terms with the reality that there is no going back uh, after, after COVID. Um, telework, uh, or, or rather COVID has um, inspired some much needed innovation um, and not only private companies, but in public sector work as well uh, for, to, to build capacity to do telework. Um, so they're going to have to sit down and think about the realities of uh, the, the economy, about the you know, work culture, um, and just kind of reckon what they have with what, what they're going to need to implement in order to keep moving forward. COVID has obviously impacted a lot of different facets of our communities. It goes without saying that it's Im Im impacted our public lives as well. So I feel like by proxy, probably our public spaces as well. Uh, Megan, do you have any, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, so definitely of all the ways that COVID's impacted our lives, um, one of the most continuous and long-term impacts is how it affects the way we move in and interact with public spaces. Um, a study done by MIT found particles as far as 26 feet away from the infected person. So, you know, the six feet distancing, that's kind of like, it feels like that in the masks, it feels like bare minimum of what we should be doing in public spaces around strangers and stuff like that. So, you know, parks, restaurants, shopping centers, theaters, large office buildings that we just discussed, um, public transport, um, they're all typically very crowded places and always, you know, very, uh, a large part of our daily work life and daily recreational lives. Um, and so COVID has definitely affected how we experience public spaces. So I think what we as a country and as, I mean, the whole planet really has been trying to find ways to do is how we can still plan for that busy street ballet that Jane Jacobs taught us is the blueprint for successful cities and organic cities um, if those interactions are no longer 100% safe. So, I mean, that's kind of the overarching question that we are trying to answer. I know that at the beginning of, uh, you know, the U.S. getting hit by COVID and social distancing measures being enacted, there were talks of widening crosswalks and redesigning, or sorry, widening sidewalks and redesigning crosswalks. Um, and as an optimist, we can look at COVID as, you know, an opportunity for planners to implement more walkable and more pedestrian and bike-friendly infrastructure leading to greener and more sustainable communities. But as a pessimist or a realist, COVID can be seen as a reason for people to keep themselves to keep to themselves and their own households, avoiding public spaces and unfamiliar people. Um, so how do you guys think we can make these types of interactions safe? And do you think that our perceptions of public spaces are gonna be changed forever after this? How do you guys feel about it? Oof, asking the big questions. Um, well, I think as planners, we're going to have to accommodate for the changing demand for our constituents. Um, there's a greater interest in active transportation. Um, and this is more for the privileged side, but a lot of people are experiencing uh, being able to transfer to working from home. So they're experiencing more time at home, more time to themselves and their families. And so they're getting more opportunities to go outside. And bikes are selling out everywhere. There's back orders and people are experiencing um, the outdoors in their daily lives. And so as planners, we can accommodate that with more bike lanes, more green space, and um, try to encourage people to keep up these healthy habits. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. You know, because I find myself, you know, watching TV shows and seeing people get close to each other now just freaks me out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like how how our generation and Generation Z are going to how how we're going to mature into this experience. You know, you had people who lived through the Great Depression that were forever you know, extremely frugal, always, you know, reduce, reuse, recycling, everything they had and, you know, everything had multiple uses and you can't throw anything out ever because you never know when you're going to need it. Um, you know, that that big global event had lasting effects and, you know, this one certainly mm -hmm. will too. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult to conceptualize what public spaces are going to look like. I think the... 
the nexus between public health and planning is the most important in the periods of a of a new disease or pandemic before that there's before there's a vaccine right because afterwards it's more or less you know once enough people get the vaccine it's more or less going to be kind of what it what it was before the pandemic with the flu and everything we would have seasons uh but by and large people would be okay and be able to maneuver in their spaces okay without any extra precautions or or anything like that um but i think the way that we make interactions safe and public life safe again is by uh doing a lot of what we're doing now which is reclaiming you know these large streets or parts of these streets uh as outdoor space as true bonafide public space for for people to hang out in um and then in an open you know airy setting um and and getting people out of you know recirculated uh, air from inside of a Walmart or or what have you. So I think more of that uh, is definitely going to help us weather any future pandemics. Um, and it's it's definitely going to be a battle to claw all of those you know alfresco spaces back from businesses and people now, which which I'm a huge proponent of uh, of keeping those spaces. Uh, hopefully mm-hmm. now that people see what this looks like, uh, what a what a true open air um, kind of pedestrian oriented public space looks like, hopefully they'll want to keep it. One plan that I read uh, to kind of combat COVID-19, not necessarily, but like other pandemics or other viruses, stuff like that, um, is planning for the self-sufficient neighborhood or the quote unquote 15 minute compact city neighborhood. So this consists of... Um, a neighborhood that has everything within reach of 15 minutes. So where you work, where you go to school, where you buy your groceries, where you go to the park and have fun, where you go shopping, stuff like that. So all of that is within 15 minutes of your home. Um, And that those types of neighborhoods are seen as being able to kind of contain viruses if in the future we had any. Um, Do you guys see this as something that could work? I love the idea, if only because it's it, it's kind of hand in hand with just walkable development in general. Right. right. Letting people experience their neighborhoods on a very intimate setting rather than through a car passenger window. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it can work even beyond its merits for public health crises. Like just just to you know li- liven things up, have people shop locally. It actually kind of reminded me of um, new urbanism. Uh, and that city, that city, I think it was called Seaside in Florida. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it was, like, very walkable. Um, the the roads were very small to minimize people driving. Like, in the center of their town, they had a park that also would, like, acted as, like, a drainage system. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for it would, right, it would yeah. flood. That's where the water would yeah, gather. So I, I do feel like, um, you know stuff like that would work but we did learn also that those are those are very privileged areas as well Mm, very desirable so so therefore you know expensive and uh, Mm -hmm. exclusive in that way totally which i think brings up an interesting you know conversation about covid and inequalities and disparities maybe we should get a little bit into that Sure, I'm down for that. (laughs) Um, I suppose this virus has 
really shone a light on inequities in our system um, as we consider who's our vulnerable populations and how underinvested areas um, are facing um, discrimination in the sense that they're more prone to becoming sick and dying or um, having people they know die. And I'm curious about our job as planners, how can we create a system that um, is safer for everyone um, and doesn't discriminate based on ability, age, or income. Uh, for example, um, our most underinvested neighborhoods face limited services and increased mm -hmm. pollution that are affecting and impacting the health of residents there. Um, and I'm curious to see how um, so many of these pre-existing conditions, which I think are partly a result of you know, their living environment, are pre-existing conditions for dying from COVID, such as heart and lung disease, um, older ages, overweight, obese, diabetes, um, air pollution, cancer from toxins and carcinogens, um, cancer or blood disorders like sickle cell anemia, which we all know is um, disproportionately found in African-Americans, uh, kidney or liver disease, weakened immune systems, and more. And we already know that um, minorities face um, limited services, especially in terms of healthcare. So they're already at a vulnerability. And then minority neighborhoods are surrounded by fast food joints, which further impacts their health outcomes. I just wanted to highlight something George said earlier in the conversation about the nexus between planning and public health and how it's really important. This pandemic is highlighting how we as professionals and advocates need to tighten that bond that links those two fields. Because having the information about how the built environment impacts people's physical, mental, and emotional well-being and how that shapes not only an individual's but a community's future is so important. You know, as they say, information is power. And empowering communities to speak up and say that it is not right that African Americans and other minorities are being infected with COVID at disproportionate rates compared to other groups. Compounding this disproportionate rate of COVID cases are the underlying health conditions seen in minority communities brought on by the environment that they live in, which planners oversee. Empowering communities to have this information to engage with their local government can be really powerful in reshaping areas such as food deserts. Since we see this and understand these connections, we really need to be on the ground empowering and advocating for these communities. You know, Mary, I, um, to answer your question directly, I think COVID has highlighted uh, and brought to light, you know, even even more explicitly, a lot of these inequities that we see, right? Um, like the LA Times came out with an article in early October, uh, where they showed some maps that uh, showed the correlation between areas in Los Angeles with uh, with worse air quality, and uh, overlaid that on you know where a lot of these COVID-related deaths are occurring, and even after. Um, adjusting the COVID-related deaths to the population of the area, it's, it's just very, very obvious that they're recurring um, in areas with uh, bad air quality, which 
is also related, like you mentioned, to um, a lack of uh, lack of investment um, in terms of the services that these uh, areas are being provided, like uh, hospitals and access to healthcare uh, and good food and things like that in general. Um, but it's it, it's not so much that the bad air quality is what's related to the COVID deaths. It's all of these things, right? Um, and the the state uh, has recently included uh, this this uh, social just, justice aspect to uh, COVID reopening. Um, so, in other words, that counties need to address the uh, their uh, low income or their minority communities um, and how they are being ravaged by the disease, they need to address, address that and fix that before the, the county can move on without them. Um, I was wondering if, if anybody had any thoughts on, on that move by the state. I think it's really the only approach that makes sense because um, as much as people think that they live in a bubble, everyone that they interact with interacts with somebody else and it's in everyone's best interest to protect public health because um, it only takes your exposure to one sick person for you to be at risk um, or to touch something that they touched. So um, it really makes me think about um, tying it back to disparity. I think about um, the privilege some people face and how uh, they haven't lost their jobs in this recession. And um, those that have, have lost their insurance with it. So at the worst time possible, they have no health insurance mm. and no income in the midst of a pandemic. I'm trying to think of, of a way to properly convey to, to the listeners like the, the urgency and just the, the gravity um, of what a lot of our communities are going through. Um, depending on how exposed you are, I guess, to the news and, and how up to date you are with everything, you, you may or may not already be in the loop about it. But uh, like you were saying, Mary, like this, th this is an issue that affects everybody, um, the rich as much as the poor. Because uh, like you mentioned, if it, it just takes that one chance, that, that one uh, exposure uh, before you get it and potentially people in your network get it. Right. And we're like very clearly seeing that even though the virus does affect does affect and can impact uh, anybody, rich or poor, um, we can clearly see the difference between, you know, how how the different classes are treated in terms of um, being uh, infected with COVID. Uh, we saw our own president get COVID and he has definitely has pre-existing conditions and he healed within within two weeks, he was barely sick for about a week and he immediately healed, but only because he had access to the absolute best um, help and hospital and care in the entire country. And so it really, that also highlights um, the very large disparity between um, people who are getting COVID right now. Can you imagine if we could get that same level of medical insurance for $750? Exactly. Sign me up. <laughs> it shows, it just showed us that it, it's possible with our healthcare system or with the, our healthcare technology 
Um, but it's impossible with our healthcare system. Yeah, our healthcare system is definitely broken because the disproportionate amount of people of color that are being, you know, directly impacted by COVID isn't the first time that there's been disparity in, you know, in health in terms of, you know, looking to um, infant mortality rates and the rate at which women die giving birth, you know, black women die at, you know, much like a significantly higher rate than, you know, other women and their babies don't have the same um, mortality rate as other babies do. And so I, I, I agree that the COVID is really highlighting that there are cracks in our system and people are just allowed to slip through and suffer. And as people that are aware, you know, I keep saying this, but we got to advocate. Now's really the time to, to advocate because, you know, the virus has been a bit of an equalizer. And I don't think there's anybody who hasn't, you know, at least known somebody impacted by COVID and, it's an opportune time to, you know, work towards getting everybody to come together on this issue and try to do better because this isn't going to be the last pandemic. Right. I guess just to localize it a little bit, I just want to throw in that um, in San Bernardino and Riverside County, there's a huge proportion of our population that's below the poverty level. Um, in San Bernardino, it's 16%, and Riverside, it's 14 So <laughs> that is a ton of people. We are both huge counties, and we have to think about the households that are most vulnerable. And Just being aware that it's our neighbors, the people we see in the grocery store or walking down the street, they are just as deserving of good health outcomes as anyone else. Absolutely. And here in the Suburban Connections podcast, we stand behind that 100%. The pandemic has impacted not only people, uh, but also our, our behaviors and our the patterns of the things that we do. Um, with kind of a mixed bag of impacts for the environment, right? The environment in general. Um, I don't know if you all remember, but in the in the early days of the lockdown, which were around March-ish, we saw some of the cleanest air that we had seen in a while. Um, I don't know if it was just me that, that made that observation, but kind of counterintuitively, it wasn't due necessarily to the drop in commuter traffic, I expect. Um, it was actually due to some rainstorms that happened in March. Uh, and, and I'm pulling this information from an NPR article that I had read, uh, backed up with information from the uh, South Coast Air Quality Management, um, where these rainstorms were what cleared the air. And sure, the, uh, the drop in commuter traffic did affect it a little bit. Um, they mentioned that the ozone levels in March, ozone being one of, kind of one of the major pollutants uh, or, or results of pollutants, uh, was 15, 15% less compared to the previous five years. So, you know, definitely a sizable difference there. Uh, but that shrank down to only an 8% difference by April, which is when 
the, the weather started to get a little bit warmer and you were seeing a lot of these pollutants come back into the atmosphere. Uh, but just kind of kind of quick question. Do, do you all kind of remember that period, March-ish? And was it just me that made that observation or did anybody else notice that too? Oh, I definitely noticed it. I have a view of um, mountains mm. in my backyard, very lovely view. And it's actually quite rare for me to have a clear view of, you know, all the way to the tippy top. But uh, March was definitely clearer than I remember it being. And actually this month, you know, November um, is, has also been really clear, but we had a pretty substantial like rainstorm a couple of weekends ago. So yeah, I've definitely noticed that there's been um, less smog. I didn't notice it myself, but I definitely, um, I saw on Twitter, everybody was posting about um, different countries like in in Italy, I think it was like the fish started swimming back where they'd never been. And they saw like birds where they never see birds. And it was just, it was a whole thing that everybody was like, nature is healing. Um, so <laughs> yeah. So I think it has, it, it did do some, um, good for the environment for a, a little bit from what I noticed. You know, it's funny that you mentioned wildlife kind of returning um to to these urban areas but also the fact that people return to the sidewalks of their own neighborhood uh it, it almost felt like that summer that pokemon go came out for the first time <laughs> and everybody was playing it you know at 3 a.m or whatever at the beach or you know at the university or wherever you were like you just saw all of these people coming together uh to play this game and i, I kind of had that same feeling um when when lockdown uh, the, the first weeks of lockdown because uh, you saw all these families uh with these little kids just on the sidewalks again just running around on the tricycle uh you know taking their daily walk and uh from from conversations that i've had with uh co-workers that are, are, are quite a bit older than i am um they were telling me that this was kind of what it was like back in the 70s you know, 80s <laughs> When uh, you would go out uh, with your group of friends and, you know, your mom told you to come back by the time that the streetlights came on, mm -hmm. like, they, uh, they, they were really kind of reminiscing about that. So, um, it, I, I, you know, obviously the pandemic, it's, it's not a great thing, but that is one of the things that I, I don't want to take for granted about this time. Connection to our communities in a way that we didn't have it before. Right. Um, but, um you guys know me and you know that I love to get on my soapbox, you know, hating on cars and car oriented development. And I wish that I could step on that same soapbox to say that, Oh, look, you know, the skies are clear because people are, you know, working from home and they're out of their cars and, and whatnot. Um, but based off of that NPR article read again, backed up by the South coast air quality management district, um, they don't really think that that was the case, that it was specifically commuter vehicles or the lack thereof that cleared the air. Um, so the, the reason they were saying, uh, based off of their studies, that there wasn't that much of a dramatic change as you would expect in our air quality, uh, given the reduction in traffic, is because a lot of the pollutants in our air actually come from heavy duty trucks and buses. 
which based off of their numbers account for at least three times more emissions than commuter vehicle traffic. So we, we've all kind of uh, felt the effects of California legislation that's encouraging more you know, electronic uh, commuter cars. Uh, so that's largely you know, a reason that um, the reduction in commuter traffic didn't really affect air quality too much. So I think the next thing that we could do is focus on electrifying uh, these heavy duty vehicles um, and, and maybe being able to capture some of their emissions there. Uh, and uh, there is some legislation in the works specifically regarding that, um, but I, you know, kind of TBD, right? To be seen, to be determined uh, whether that'll actually go through and what what that'll look like. Um, but another another question that I wanted to pose to everybody is uh, to to get you thinking a bit is uh, how your personal behaviors changed in the pandemic. Um, I, I know for mine. I, I have definitely um, been generating a lot more household waste. Uh, so I'm thinking of things like, you know, disposable gloves, masks, and at least for me, like takeout. Uh, my, my Uber Eats, DoorDash, you know, budget has been through the roof since this pandemic happened. Uh, but I uh, was curious if anybody else had uh, experienced something similar. Yeah, I definitely noticed um, my increase in waste. Um, even when I I went outdoor dining, um, and even in outdoor dining, they're using reusable or sorry, one single use uh, plastic. So like for sauces, um, even if you're dining in at the restaurant, they give you um, those little plastic sauce containers and and takeout, of course, is in styrofoam. So everybody's been using styrofoam. So that is something that I noticed that I felt like would um, kind of probably leave a bigger impact on the environment in the long run as well. Definitely bulk making, bulk producing and manufacturing all these um, single-use uh, products. Well, and a little bit beyond the waste generated, I, which I have also personally noticed in my household, is my utility mm. bills are a lot higher than they used to be. And I think now I'm getting a better perspective on the amount of water I use daily and the amount of like energy I, you know, and my household use. And before the pandemic, I really only had an idea of, you know, how much, you know, I as a help, you know, I as an individual and part of a household would use in the mornings and the evenings of a weekday and then the weekends. But now I'm getting that full picture of what, you know, almost 24 seven, you know, 365, almost Jesus. 365. It's almost been a year, guys. Um, you know, not leaving the house, like what that looks like in terms of water and power usage. And it's definitely been driving me to try to be more conscious and um, purposeful in my usage. Something that I have to confess is my preference for online shopping, especially with the rise of the pandemic. And here I am on my soapbox about inequities and disparities, but I'm part of a system that's making somebody run around in a hot warehouse in the middle of summer to like get me something that's a non-necessity, you know, because I don't feel like going out. And so that's just something on my mind. 
In the IE, we have a major system of Amazon fulfillment warehouses, online shopping, and logistics that shapes the character of the region. If we're lucky, we may have a special guest on the podcast later on to discuss warehouses further to give us an insider perspective. Absolutely. And like you mentioned, we'll be getting into this a little bit further down the line. But uh, to your point about kind of the individual responsibility that you feel, that's, that's important. But then what I will also posit to the group is that we can't let these corporations shame us individually into making us think that we're the problem. Because really, this is a larger uh, issue than, than just consumer habits, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I'll save that soapbox for later. <laughs> but with that, I think that's been quite an interesting conversation about COVID from an urban planning perspective. Uh, obviously, there are multiple multiple facets and experiences and realities that we just weren't able to capture in the short time that we have Uh, but i think this is definitely a great start to start thinking about how our own lives have changed and hopefully for our listeners um, the changes that they've seen in their communities due to covid or maybe things that they think might work better uh, that their communities might be able to address better or their decision makers uh, need to need to take into consideration So um, with that, thank you for joining us to our first episode of Suburban Connections, and we hope to see you next time.